This episode is brought to you in part by The Good Book Company, publisher of Does the Bible Affirm Same-Sex Relationships? by Rebecca McLaughlin, a book that examines 10 claims about the Bible's view of sexuality. Go to thegoodbook.com slash sexualethics to receive 25% off with code CT25. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, I think you know who I am. This is Joel Rosenberg. Uh, it's a pleasure to have Joel with us. What you don't know, I, I, I asked uh, our, uh, the Hendricks Center staff, by the way, let's thank um, Kim Cook, Pam Cole, Heather Zimmerman, uh, who, who helped make this possible. I put together a, a tape of music at the start and she was telling me people had a strange look about what this music was and that kind of thing. What you've got to realize is that you've got two Messianic Jews up here who are, who are, about, to, who are about to engage in a conversation. You might pray about that. And, uh, and so the music that you were listening to when you came in that sounded strange and foreign was strange and foreign because it was Messianic Jewish music. So, uh, so anyway, so now everyone's going to want to buy the, the uh, you know, the MP3 on the way out. But anyway, um, uh, Joel, it's a real pleasure to have you with us. And uh, let me, I'm going to introduce Joel so that those of you who don't know who he is can find out and most of you, but most of you know. He's a New York Times best-selling author. He's written uh, many books. Uh, this is one of the, I think this is one of the latest ones, if I'm not mistaken, The Third Target. And there, we've got others that we're going to do as a giveaway in a minute. Uh, and uh, Joel has, is involved in uh, uh, a ministry called the Joshua Fund. You want to tell us a little bit about what that is? And, and sure. Uh, basically, when I started writing novels, and uh, they were all about disasters in the Middle East, and I began to get a sense from people thinking, "Well, okay, what do we do to actually make a difference rather than just read one of your books?" Um, my wife and I didn't have an answer for that. So as we prayed about it, we ended up starting a ministry called the Joshua Fund. Uh, it's to mobilize. Uh, Christians to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus according to the Abrahamic Covenant, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Uh, we believe that uh, even though I'm Jewish and want to reach my people with the gospel, that God also loves the Palestinians and the Syrians and their Iraqis and all the neighbors. So uh, that's what we do. We think of ourselves as, in somewhat as a uh, a uh, hedge fund uh, or a, a venture capital fund, let's say, for ministries. So in other words, we're, we will raise this money and then invest it in ministries that are uh, both educating the church about what God's heart is for the region, as well as ministries that are doing evangelism, discipleship, church planting, pastor encouragement, and humanitarian relief given the, the poverty and the trauma uh, of, of, of disaster and refugees in the region. So. Uh, that's the objective, and that's that's the the side venture. I mean, that's not really the main thing we do, but it's it's it's. I would just do that if I could, but the mm -hmm. Lord keeps saying, no, no, be a novelist. Keep, okay. keep writing. So, uh, so, and how recently did you was it that you moved to Israel? Uh, we moved to Israel in August 
of 2014. Um, I'm married uh, to my wife Lynn uh, for 25 years. We met at Syracuse University in Campus Crusade for Christ. Hmm. And uh, so we have four sons and they have all come with us. Uh, they're uh, 21, 19, 17, and a very precocious 11. Hmm. Uh, Caleb, Jacob, Jonah, and Noah. And uh, people say, all right, you got to look So you worked there, back you... to the flood. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And we people say, well, why do you have a Noah? You, you have this big gap between Jonah and Noah. I said, well, that's because Jesus said in Matthew 24 that he's not coming back again until the days of Noah. So we thought, you know, if we're holding him back, we'd better have a Noah. So anyway, that's... Uh, okay, well... So, yeah, we moved there in August of 2014. It happened to be uh, at a time when the Palestinian uh, terrorists of Gaza were... Firing 4,500 uh, thank you presents to you know welcome mm -hmm. Rosenbergs. We're so glad you're here. And uh, <laughs> why don't you just run right to your bomb shelter immediately? Do not yeah. pass go. Do not collect 200 shekels. <laughs> so. Very good. Well, it's what exciting we, way to start. That's exactly right. Well, what I'm going to do is um, we're going to talk about Israel, Islam, and the Middle East. And just the easy topic. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. If we get to the Middle East, it'll be interesting. But anyway. Um, and so, uh, Joel, I thought could uh, begin by giving us a, a, just kind of a short summary of kind of uh, the topic, and then I'm going to interview him for a short period, and we'll take a touch of a break, and then there'll be time for questions from the floor. You can see the microphones on the corner, so if you want to ask questions, uh, you can do that. I'll just note that we are recording this for the table, <clears throat> so anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law because uh, it will go public. Uh, so uh, just keep that in mind as you, as you interact with Joel. So Joel, the floor is yours. Thank you, Daryl. What a joy yeah, uh, to be great. here. Um, well, uh, let me just start um, with just a few minutes to give you a little bit of context, uh, and then happy to go wherever you want the conversation to go. I'm a failed political consultant. That's my actual professional pedigree. Um, <laughs> Everyone that I ever worked for lost. <laughs> uh, you laugh, but that's because it's not your career. And, uh, I, uh, I helped Steve Forbes lose two presidential campaigns and about $70 million of his daughter's inheritance money. Um, I, uh, I worked for Jack Kemp and Bill Bennett, both of who decided not to run, even though they were leading in the polls. Uh, I... Uh, I, was, I worked for Natan Sharansky, the Deputy Prime Minister of Israel. He decided to, he got so frustrated with politics, he quit entirely. Uh, I worked for Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, on his comeback campaign team in the year 2000. It took him nine years to come back, okay? And I, I played no useful role. And uh, so, uh, so this, is my, this was my life. And uh, I decided to, to get out, uh, to get out of politics. Um, I went through political detox. I got out, I got clean. Um, though in 2016, I, I need a patch because of all the political activity going on out there now. Uh, my friends always are trying to get me to work for some campaign that they want to lose. But anyway, so, uh, but, uh, but God's pulled me out of that. So I, I, I shifted out of politics and decided to start making things up, up for a living. Uh, fortunately, there's a title for that, novelist. But uh, you know, of course, my friends think I was making things up when I was working for the political folks. But uh, my first novel was called The Last Jihad. And I began writing it in January of 2001. Uh, the last jihad, the first page, puts you inside the cockpit of a jet plane 
coming in on a kamikaze attack mission into an American city. Now, this was nine months before September 11th. The plot leads from the kamikaze attack to an American president uh, launching a war to take out Saddam Hussein and his regime in Iraq. Hmm. That book I was finishing on the morning of September 11th, uh, 2001, in the townhouse where my wife and kids and I were living at the time, 15 minutes away from Washington Dulles Airport, hmm. where at that moment, uh, Flight 77 from American Airlines was being hijacked, uh, turned around, flown over our house and into the Pentagon. And, uh, you know, the novel didn't release until uh, November of 2002. No one had ever heard of it. Um, you know, no one had ever heard of me. But because the book just seemed ripped out of the headlines, ones that had happened, and then we were just about, we were in the midst of this massive national and global debate over whether we should go to war in Iraq. And so the book hit right into that moment. Mm. And now, don't go to where, whether you think we should have or shouldn't have. Think about you as a first novelist writing a novel about whether we do or not, and then suddenly, you know, boom. And uh, I had never been on radio or television in my life. Uh, and, in, and in 60 days, I was on 160 radio and TV shows. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them was in my hometown of Rochester, New York, where I grew up. And I'll just say that uh, it, since it was, you know, actually my first interview was with Hannity on radio and then on Hannity on television. That's how I started. Hmm. So it was, it was daunting. I felt like Marsha Brady looking into the camera going, <laughs> anyway, that's an old reference. But anyway, um, uh, but the next day I was on a radio show from my hometown and I don't, remember my, my publicist didn't think, nobody knew me so it was hard to find people. I, I knew Hannity because I'd, I'd worked with him for a while. Uh, I hadn't helped him lose anything but I, I uh, <laughs> but they, but they didn't know, who, nobody knew me, so they, they thought, well, hometown, we'll go to a radio there, show there, there and try to get him on something. You know, obviously then it, 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 many more interested, were interested, but all that to say, this guy was on a rock station. I don't know, it was the only station they could find that wanted to interview me. So this was my like, second interview. Like the, so it's Wednesday morning, the book came out Tuesday, and I'm on this show with a guy named Brother Wheeze, okay? <laughs> on a rock station that I remember the station. I didn't listen to it because I wasn't a rocker as they, as they were in the day. And so, so anyway, he's like, dude, this is amazing. How could you have known that, you know, Muslims were gonna hijack a plane and fly it into a city? You know, and I said, well, I didn't know. And he's like, wow, this is so amazing. And then this whole thing with a rock and now here we are. And he says, are you a Hebe? I said, I'm sorry, what? He said, a Hebe. A Hebrew, are you a Hebrew? Uh, I'm Jewish, are you? I said, oh, uh, okay. You know, I thought, like, Hebrew national hot dog? I'm like, what am I? I didn't, I'd never actually been called that. So I, I was just totally unprepared. And I, I said, uh, well, I'm Jewish on my father's side and Gentile on my mom's side. I, I said, why do you ask? He said, well, at the end of your book, you got all these characters. They're all talking about Jesus, don't they? I said, well, yes. What are you, what are you an evangelical? A born again? You know, like it just sounded radioactive coming off of his tongue, right? So I said, well, I, you know, Mr. Wheeze, I, uh, I, 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 I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, I, I do. I said, well, you know, I don't understand that. How can, you, how can you be Jewish and believe in Jesus? I said, well, again, Brother um, Wheeze, uh, it is an interesting story, but I'm sure you don't have time, you know, for me to get into it on the show. I, you know, we could talk about the novel. Like, no, 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 listen, listen. It's one thing 
to have a guy who writes fiction and it comes true. To talk to a guy like that, that's one thing. But to have a Jew who believes in Jesus, this I got to hear, son. <laughs> <laughs> and so he held me on to the, after the break and forced me <laughs> to give me my give my testimony what a and, shame. and it was exciting <laughs> and that that set into motion so many programs mm -hmm. uh where we not only talked about the geopolitical realities of being threatened by radical islam not all of islam but radical islam and what that means and why i'd written a book like this but it, it with so many of the shows a high percentage people would say how can you be a name like rosenberg and believe in jesus w what is that and that was the most exciting thing, Daryl. I, I'd never, I'd never even imagined. We'd prayed for, you know, the Lord to use this novel in some way to be useful for the kingdom. But, and that's that's really what set my new career into motion. And uh, believe me, nobody's more surprised than me, except for my wife. So you're now you're a winning novelist. <laughs> uh, there's three million copies in print. Uh, they've all been New York Times bestsellers. Um, I, now that you know that I'm a failed political consultant, you know that I, I couldn't have done this. Listen, I, I'd never even taken a class on writing a novel. I didn't even read novels as much as I, I mean, I, I lived in Washington, I read nonfiction. I, I rarely, you know, Clancy, Grisham. And, you know, I'm, a, I'm Jewish, but I'm one of the few Jewish people in America that didn't get the financial gene. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not your stockbroker or your accountant or your hedge fund manager. I, I'm not your doctor or your lawyer or your chiropractor. I mean, I sort of didn't get the whole, you know, very lucrative uh, set of skills that most Jews get. I, I got the gift of making things up. So I, uh, <laughs> but the Lord has, has, has used that um, the more that I was willing to, you know, surrender it. And, uh, and I, I'm, I'm just shocked at what has happened, but, but gratified and, and the doors that has opened to the, for the gospel, both with Jews, with Muslims, with others. Um, it really is is more than I could have hoped for, dreamt of, or imagined. Well, let's 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 talk about um, Israel and Islam in the Middle East. And I really like the way you help people sort through thinking about uh, Islam. So uh, I'm going to ask you a very specific question, and that is um, the difference between radical Islam, apocalyptic Islam, and Islam. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And how much time did you say we had? Um, you you no, need to do this in 30 words or less. Okay. No. <laughs> okay. Well, look, let, let, let me be clear, and I uh, pick up the point I made a moment ago, but only in passing. We're not talking about 1.6 billion Muslims that are, are the danger. If you look at all the research that's been done, and a lot of research has been done, uh, the Gallup poll, Pew Research have done just massive surveys throughout all of the uh, Arab world, the Islamic world. The studies keep coming back. You say somewhere between seven and ten percent of of the Islamic world subscribes to a, a violent jihadist um, theology or ideology. So you can say, and you should say, that the vast majority of, of Muslims are, are not violent. Now, the, the seven to ten percent doesn't mean they're necessarily engaged in violence. But if you ask them questions from every which way, you find out that they support ISIS, they support a suicide bombing, that they believe in you know, these types of things. And so you begin to categorize them and say, all right, well, this is a group that believes in violent jihad. So the good news is 90% don't. That's wonderful. But in a world of 1.6 billion Muslims, 
10% is 160 million people, right? Mm -hmm. So if you were to group them all in their, their own country, the Islamic Republic of Radicalstan, for example, mm -hmm. this would be you know, half of the size of the United States. Mm -hmm. This would be the eighth or ninth largest country on the planet. So it's not insignificant. The issue isn't that the vast majority aren't like this. We should say it, we, the good, that's, that's good, and we should affirm it. And, 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 the, and a large and growing number of the 90% are looking at the 10 and going, or the four or the two, and thinking, if that's Islam, I don't wanna be part of it. Okay, so that's the vast majority. Um, then you break it down to the radicals, and the radicals are people who believe that Islam is the answer and jihad is the way to all the problems that they face. And the shortest way to put it is that radical Islam seeks to attack us as infidels, Jews, Christians, pagans from the West, whatever religion or lack thereof. The goal of attacking us is to get us to leave their holy lands and their holy places. Okay, so they're using violence to achieve an end, which is to get us to leave their part of the world. That's radical Islam in a, as fast as I can summarize it. That's Al-Qaeda, that's the Taliban, that's the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Hamas, so forth. So that's radical Islam. Now a subset of radical Islam is what I call apocalyptic Islam. This is the theme of my new series, The Third Target, and the, and the most recent one, The First Hostage. Uh, apocalyptic Muslims are all radicals, and they're all Muslims. Uh, but not every, not every Muslim is a radical, but every radical is a Muslim every, within this context. And not every radical is an apocalyptic Muslim, but every apocalyptic Muslim is a radical Muslim. So what's the difference? Radical Islam wants to attack us. Apocalyptic Islam openly speaks of annihilating us. Why? They don't want to just remove us from a region. They are trying to set up a regional kingdom or caliphate for their Messiah, so-called, the Mahdi to come and, and, and he will then establish a global Islamic kingdom uh, and he will establish justice and peace in their eschatology. So this is important. It's important in public policy to understand the difference between Islam, radical Islam, and apocalyptic Islam. The reason that apocalyptic Islam is so important and why I'm writing about it now is because the leaders of two nation states, not just one, but two, are driven by this. Iran, their leaders are driven by this apocalyptic eschatology, and the leaders of ISIS, the Islamic State, are driven by it. Now, they have differences. We can talk about them if you'd like, but, but what's important is to understand this is, a different, this is substantively, significantly, qualitatively different and much more dangerous than just radical Islam and, and certainly the broader Islamic world. Okay, uh, I want to I want to come back to the large group. So when we deal with uh, we we talk about and, uh, let me just say that yeah. it's not just important from public policy. I, I, I failed to say it's important in terms of the church mm -hmm. to understand this in terms of the gospel and in terms of missions. So okay, so so we say that ninety percent of Muslims are not either apocalyptic or radical. So what are they? Well, okay. So I wrote a book called uh, Inside the Revolution. Mm -hmm. In 2009, that's a nonfiction book, very heavy uh, and large, and um, I don't know why I did that. But anyway, I, uh, <laughs> it, the story is a gift that keeps on giving, so yeah, it just, uh, yeah. my editor didn't have the heart to stop me. In the book, I, I divide the book into uh, three sections. The radicals, I, I wasn't focusing much on apocalyptic at the time, it has sort of emerged in my clarity of thinking. But the radicals is part one, the reformers are part two, and then the revivalists are part three. 
Uh, all of them are important, but within the area, but then there's others. The, the vast majority, I, I would say, are the rank and file. Meaning they're just, they're, they're not playing tennis, they're, they're in the stands at Wimbledon. And they're watching the radicals take on the reformers. Reformers are like King Abdullah of Jordan, uh, President al-Sisi in uh, Egypt, uh, uh, King Mohammed VI in Morocco, Previously, you would have said the Turks, although under Erdogan, things have gone crazy. Mm -hmm. But people who are saying Islam is the answer, but jihad is not the way, violent jihad, uh, you know, we need reform, we need change, we need openness and moderation, and, and, uh, and uh, we need to open things up, not shut things down in terms of Islam. So, but, but the vast majority of Muslims are, are rank and file. They are watching the debate and they have very little voice, uh, but what happens matters. And they're, they're, they're struggling with what is the definition of Islam? Because the radicals, and certainly the apocalyptics, are saying, here's the chapters, here's the verses. Don't tell us we're not Muslims. This, this is, <clears throat> and then, you know, King Abdullah and King Muhammad, they come out and they say, no, no, no. The, so I have a chapter, if you're interested, in Inside the Revolution in the radical section, the theology of the radicals. I go specifically to their, the, the Quran and the Hadith, the, the sort of their, their Talmud, as it were, uh, their, uh, extra their, things, their tra other traditions. Yep. And I, def I say, what do the radicals say? What's their theological argument? So we understand it. And, and there are verses that they, you can draw right out of the Quran and the Hadith that talk about these type of violence and then justify it. But then in the, in the reformer section, I've got a chapter called The Theology of the Reformers. When they say, no, 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 the, the radicals are hijacking our religion, what's their theological case? And it's fascinating to read it side by side. And the shortest way to put it is both cases are actually in the texts. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the simplest way to understand it is that in the course of the life of Muhammad, he changed from trying to win over Jews and Christians as people of the book. That's the language he was using when he was trying to say, and I'm the, the completion of your, your prophets. I, I'm the last prophet. I'm the one that, that Moses said was coming um, and that everyone had to listen to me, he said. And so when he was trying to win them over, oh, we're all people of the book, you know, sort of uh, the Rodney King version of uh, Islamic theology. Can't we all just get along, you know, back in the, the 90s, uh, LA. Okay, never mind. Um, <laughs> that sort of ecumenical sense of it. But once he realized that the Jews and the Christians weren't gonna buy this, he turned violent. And the language of, of violence of killing Jews and Christians, this became, this began to emerge. So you have both, and the good news is most Muslims don't read the text. That's good. Or they don't study it, or they don't understand it, or they're not being taught a radical version of it. But once you start to press in, all those violent verses are there, and so th this is where the radicals and the apocalyptic Muslims justify this. And so the rank and file is watching the debate, which is, which is just, you know, at a feverish pitch right now, and they're struggling. They can't speak out loud for fear of being arrested or beaten or killed, but they're internally wondering, well, if the radicals are right, is that me? And those that are saying it is, they're joining and becoming foreign fighters. If they're saying, that's ridiculous. If that's Islam, I can't be part of that. They're beginning to turn on satellite television or go on the web and begin searching 
is there any, what's, what's true? Because if, if it's not this, and this is my whole culture in life, what is true? Is there a God? How do I know him? And this is what God is doing. He's, the, the, our, you know, the God of the Bible is letting the radicals and the apocalyptic Muslims create a firestorm. And it's satanically driven, but it's sovereign, the sovereignty of God is allowing it to happen. Why? To shake the Muslim world like it's never been shaken in 14 centuries to get people to think. Islam does not encourage thinking. It, it means submission. You do not think, you do not question, you do not ask. And now they're questioning, now they're thinking, now they're asking. And many are coming to Christ. More Muslims have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and renounced Islam in the last 40 years than in the last 14 centuries. And I think there's much more to come. So if we put this all together, where it leaves us is, is that we've got a situation in which um, the radicalizing of Islam has produced a discomfort for many Muslims. I'm familiar with a ministry called Iran Alive. I'm sure yes. you know what I'm talking Absolutely. about. Actually, it's it's headquartered in, in Carrollton here in, in Texas. Hormoz Sharia. Yeah, that's right. Dear friend had dear friend, dinner with him in December. And we've been at conferences where he has spoken, uh, where we've both spoken as well. I call him the Billy Graham of Iran. And, and he's talking about millions of Muslims who watch his show by satellite, many of whom have come to the Lord. The other stories that we hear are about refugees in places like Lebanon, where the church's ministry to Muslims has actually brought uh, many uh, Muslims to Christ. And, and so I'm assuming you're hearing these stories as well. We're hearing them because we're engaged in them. The Joshua Fund funds, 20% uh, of our funding goes to ministries in the Arab world, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Iraq. I've spent, um, I've been on four trips into Iraq so far, um, in Jordan numerous times. Actually, I was in Jordan doing research for these books. I met with the prime minister, the foreign minister, the interior minister, the, one of the princes. God, so we are working on, on the ground with refugees, with, with the, the, the persecuted church, and we're operating at several different levels, trying to share the gospel with anyone and everyone we can, but mostly to help local ministries do that work. So we're getting firsthand intel back, and that's the key. You have to understand that darkness is falling. Evil is on the offensive in the Middle East and North Africa, and the forces of freedom are in retreat. Uh, much of that because of the United States is, is, is physically in retreat. That being said, th this is the greatest era for the gospel in history. So. Hormoz Shariat, the head of this, this ministry, a former Shia Muslim um, who came to Christ um, uh, here in the United States after being a radical Muslim, shouting death to America, death to America. Then he and his wife thought, well, maybe not death to America quite yet. We'd like to go to graduate school over there. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it was here in the United States, actually in Southern California, that they both nearly got a divorce, <laughs> but then both came to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and now he would say, listen, Joel, you know, from a, from a human rights perspective, from, a, from an American perspective, I would love to see Iran open up and have a real reformer government. But I will tell you, this is the perfect storm of conditions right now that's causing um, 80 million Muslims in Iran to, to head towards the exits, at least in their hearts and their minds about Islam. The 40-some years of, of, of radical and apocalyptic Islam that they are living under is so horrific that this is what's causing Muslims to think, I'm out. And there are, more, there are millions of Muslims in Iran who've come to Christ, and as a Jew, I'm incredibly jealous. 
Hmm. We're not seeing that level of response to the gospel yet. We're seeing more openness among Jews than ever before. We might end up um, covering some of that, but, but you couldn't have asked for a better government from the perspective of the gospel than the Ayatollah Khomeini and the Ayatollah Hamanai. And this helps, we've got to think as, as American believers, we just have to constantly think there's a public policy perspective and then there's Jesus's foreign policy. These are not in contradiction. The American government should be protecting us from apocalyptic and radical Muslims and neutralizing their nuclear forces and all the rest of that. At the same time, the church has a, has a separate agenda. We're not supposed to be, you know, defeating and neutralizing our enemy. We're supposed to be loving them and sharing the gospel with them and even loving and serving and praying for them. So we've got we've to think biblically about these things uh, and understand there's different roles for government and for the church or we're going to miss the moment. I have, I have some friends who minister in Albania. Mm. They're dealing with some of the refugees coming out of the Middle East and they're doing very creative things like when someone enters into their country, they're giving them a cell phone so they can communicate with one another. But in the cell phone and they, they ask the Muslims who they're giving the cell phone to saying, we're here to give you a cell phone, but on the cell phone there also is in the chip a Bible. Would you be interested in having it and reading it? And many, many of the refugees say yes. Um, and so you, uh, when he was describing this ministry to me uh, over an email, I was just amazed at, one, the creativity of it, and two, uh, the opportunity that it created because what happens in some cases is, is that they're reading these texts and starting to ask questions about what it is that they're reading. Amen. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Amen. We're seeing the similar thing. Uh, we, we don't do it with cell phones, but with providing um, uh, basically a little MP3 player mm -hmm. that has the New Testament in the local language um, and, and earbuds. And so what happens is uh, they can listen. You know, they got nothing to do, right, mm -hmm. in these refugee camps. Um, and so you can sit around and listen to the Bible. Uh, my first experience with this, at first I thought, well, you know, I, I don't know, is that going to work? I mean, this was a number of years ago. And uh, so... One of my friends on, on our staff, Joshua, said, Let's, let me take some in to the region and just, just see what the pastors say, if they can use them. Long story short, uh, he, my friend dropped some of these uh, off for a guy. He said, ah, I've never used anything like this, but sure, leave some and we'll, we'll see what happens. Well, this, this guy worked for a Bible society and um, a, a Muslim woman, a veiled woman, came in one day and asked for a Bible. And uh, she was very, you know, she was looking all around, she was very nervous. He gave her an, an Arabic New Testament. She slipped it in, took off. A week or two later, came back in tears because her husband had found the Bible, had yelled at her 
screamed at her and told her, don't ever let this be in this house again. She said, I've got to bring it back. And so she left it on the desk and started to head to the door and she was crying and suddenly this guy remembered, oh wait, I have these MP3 players. So he said, wait, 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 ma'am. Uh, and she, he explained what it was and said, would you like this? And she says, oh yes. So what she would do, she, she would put it under her veil and while she was vacuuming or, or washing the dishes and the husband was watching Al Jazeera, she was listening to, you know, John Vacuuming chapter one. With Jesus. John chapter two, yeah. <laughs> and nobody was the wiser. Yeah. This, so God is using all kinds of creative ways, but it requires a heart to say, yes, these people are lost, but they're trapped by Satan. And we were trapped by Satan. And thank God someone didn't say, you know, nuke them till they glow. They said to us, hey, Daryl needs Jesus. Joel needs Jesus. You need Jesus. And we've got to see these people as, as, as hostages um, and not... They're, they're not the enemy. They are often agents of the enemy, but so was Saul. And we're very happy, you in particular, uh, <laughs> with, a, uh, with, a, with a story that, that, that Luke tells us of the, of the power of how Christ transformed a religious Jewish terrorist in Damascus, I might add, or at least on the road to it. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's other people on the road to Damascus that need Jesus right now. So. Uh, this is the heart we have to have. It comes from the scriptures. Uh, Matthew chapter four is all about how, the, the, as Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom, the news spreads through all, all Syria. Well, what a great verse. We need the news, the good news of the gospel, of the gospel, not the caliphate, the gospel of the kingdom of Christ to go throughout all Syria right now. But it's, it takes risks, it takes courage, uh, and it takes a belief we, that, that Matthew 24, 14 is true. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end shall come. And that's the difference between apocalyptic Islam and biblical eschatology. Apocalyptic eschatology says they, their job is to kill as many people as possible, and then their Messiah will come. And Christ told us in Matthew 24, 14, try to save as many people as possible in the power of the Holy Spirit, and then the Lord will come to set up his kingdom. And this is the photographic negative of these two eschatologies. We both want a kingdom. We both believe the Messiah is coming soon, but their goal with the, is genocide, and our objective is the gospel. Well, um, we've got time for questions, so if you have a question, go ahead and line up the mics. Let's talk a little bit about the ministry that goes on to the Jewish community that you're a part of, uh, and, uh, and then we'll start taking questions from the floor. Great. Well, um, the Lord has just, again, opened up these doors for me, you know, just my narrow angle. Um, you know, my, my father came to faith uh, in 1973. He was raised Orthodox Jewish in Brooklyn. Uh, his family of Orthodox Jews had escaped out of Russia in the early years of the uh, 20th century when the, uh, the Tsar was um, overseeing the pogroms. And, you know, they got out by God, the grace of God, got to the United States, and like any good Jewish family, they set up a shop in Brooklyn. I'm not sure where your good Jewish family lived, but if it wasn't Brooklyn, I'm, you know, I'm it's, sure it's fine. Yeah, it's in the city. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but when my father came to faith in 1973, six months after my mom, he thought he was the first Jew since the Apostle Paul who believed this stuff. <laughs> he never heard of a Jew who believed in Jesus. Um, he never heard, he'd never heard of this, he'd never met one, and, and in 1973 there weren't that many. What year did you come to faith? In 1976. Okay, so, and I was 75, and a lot of people, you know, God was moving his spirit, not just among Jews, but the whole Jesus movement. 
All that to say, uh, I didn't know I was Jewish till the fifth grade. You're like, Joel, your name is Joel Rosenberg. You must have been the dumbest kid in the class. <laughs> Nevertheless, I didn't know because my parents didn't tell me. My father had had such bad experiences with Jewishness that he didn't want to talk about it. He'd married a Gentile. He'd, you know, he'd moved to California for a long time. He thought that was Gentile. And um, that was the <laughs> promised land, you know, La Jolla, California. <laughs> my point is that um, it sort of stumbled out one day and I was like, what? You're Jewish? Does that mean I'm Jewish? How did this never come up? <laughs> you know, it's kind of an interesting revelation. And over the course of my life, I've, got, I've been so intrigued with what does that mean? And why do so few Jews know the Lord? So, my, you know, I'm just so excited that, we're, that I live in a, in a season where Jews are so open. And I believe we've gone from about 2,000 Jewish people on the planet who believed in Jesus as Messiah in 1967, that was the year I was born, fewer than 2,000, uh, to today I believe it's more than 300,000. Now in a world of 14 and a half million Jewish people, that's not nearly enough, but the trend line is something I like. And Jews look for signs, and so that's one of mine. And um, I'm excited by the movement, and I'm excited by the openness. This is right at a moment where a lot of the church uh, worldwide, uh, even in the States, don't want to talk about Jewish evangelism, too sensitive, we don't want to offend the Jews. Listen, that, that's Satan messing things up right at the moment where Jews are more interested in talking about Jesus than ever. Uh, a lot of the church is shutting down on the topic. And um, to me, that's the ultimate act of anti-Semitism, is to deny a Jewish person the opportunity to hear that our Messiah has come, and then we get to make a decision one way or another, for or against, but we've got to be engaged in, in, the, in the gospel for all people, starting with the Jews, and of course the Muslims and everyone else. So that's, yeah, I'll stop there. Okay, well okay. we've got someone at a mic, so Great. go ahead and ask your question. Um, thank you so much for coming here. Sure, um, honored. I, was, I read the research that Pew done on Muslims across the world, and I remember hearing a speaker talk about it, and he was uh, labeling the 50% uh, or more <coughs> Jews um, who want Sharia law to be the law of the land, he was labeling them as radicals. Um, and I wanted you to, to speak on that. Like, what would you say to this man who was labeling these 50% or more who wants to read a law to be the law of the land as radical? And how would you like respond to him? Saying, was it the law in, in a Muslim country or here in the United States? Anywhere. So, um, yeah. He okay. said about 50% sure. of the world population of the Muslims want the Sharia law to be the law of the land. Yeah. Uh, I, I can understand why someone would characterize that as radical. It certainly is radical by American constitutional standards, right? We have freedom of religion, but Sharia law requires a complete abrogation of the Constitution in, in favor of, of Islamic law, so that's, that would be unconstitutional. Uh, people don't have the freedom to scrap our Constitution. But yeah, Sharia law, it, it, when it's really done the way it's supposed to be done, is, is brutal, it's anti-woman, it's anti-religious freedom, it's anti, you know, I mean, it, it, is, it, is, it is brutal. Um, I sort of expect a Muslim to, it, to want Sharia law because it's what they know. So I'm not, I don't immediately consider that a radical position in terms of trying to think, would they use violence to go get it? To want something is not the same as to impose something, right? And you know, I want every Muslim to come to Jesus. But I'm not a crusader or an inquisitor or, you know, I want every Jew to know Jesus, but I, you know, I'm not, a Nazi, right? So the, it, there's a difference between um, 
uh, not that the Nazis wanted Jews to come to Jesus. I, I just let's be. Sorry, I, just, um, you're, you're, what I mean is, there have been people who have you know done horrible things in the name, or at least the impression of Christendom, that have been horrible. Um, wanting people to believe something and forcing something to believe something is is different. So, the the questions that I look at that help me determine whether somebody's a radical. Is, is by the definition of, would they use violence to achieve their ends, mm -hmm. right? And, and Christ specifically told us not to do that, right? He, he said in front of Pilate, if, I, if my kingdom were of this world, then my followers would be using violence to overthrow you, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but, um, and resist this arrest, but my kingdom is not as of this world. It's a kingdom, he's a king, and he's coming, but, um, but as, as followers of Christ, we are not supposed to be engaged in forcibly, you know, imposing our views. And so, does that help sift it through a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I want to chime in, because if I were to ask people in this room, how many people would want America to live by Christian principles? I get a pretty high percentage of people in this room. But if I were to turn around and say, how many people think we should impose that by violence? I'd get a very different number. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so. That's uh, never worked out well for Jews. I, I actually think. <laughs> I, yeah. No. Um, I actually think that, it's, that one of the important aspects of this conversation that we're having is thinking through and understanding the fact that Islam is not a monolith that there are a variety of Muslims out there and a variety of ways that Muslims view what's going on in the world out there. There are huge pockets of Islam that dislike what is happening on the more radical elements of the spectrum in Islam. And from a geopolitical point of view, um, having them as allies in this discussion is almost necessary. It's essential, absolutely. And, and so, um, and that, it puts us in the same room with people who want and well, what do you believe? Well, I, and I'm having all kinds of conversations exactly with right. Muslims about Jesus. And, and, and people who react to violence um, when it's coming, in fact, their reaction to violence is, that's not us and please don't equate me with them. Yes. That's the reaction that you get. I've been in rooms where I've heard Muslims say this. And, uh, and, and so that's a very, very important thing to understand about the complexity of what it is that we're dealing with when you just utter the word Islam. Okay, over here, question. Uh, I have a question about Islam, but before I ask it, when you made the comment about Jewish evangelism, uh, it made me think of uh, a couple of guys that I went to DTS with many years ago who are Jewish brothers, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum and Barry Leventhal. Oh, mm -hmm. Wow. And good they men. both. Two, yeah, two wow. good friends. Go ahead. Yeah. And they both. Kept good company. Yeah. <laughs> They are great men. Mm -hmm. uh, both of them have written uh, in detail, not necessarily extensively, but in detail about, the, about Romans 1, wherein we are commanded according to them. And I, I, I've come to agree with that position, but I surely would like to ask both of you men, um, because of your Jewish background, where Paul says, you know, it is to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, and their position on that is that the evangelism uh, of a church, of an individual, of the church, should begin in the Jewish community, 
That's how they understand that passage. And uh, they make a great argument for that uh, view. And I was just wondering how you gentlemen feel about mm. that. Wow, that's a whole doctoral dissertation. Um, I think uh, if I give get this right, can I get something for it? Well, you, you know, got, letter, I, I, letters after I'll my let, name. I'll let, you, I'll let you give an answer. You can I just be further again. Okay. okay. Well, <laughs> I, I, look, I, first of all, um, it, this was the Apostle Paul's model, um, but I think that you know, you'd be if you were a missionary to Papua New Guinea, it'd be hard to find a Jewish community uh, before you shared with uh, you know some sort of uh, person in a jungle. So, I, look, I, I think. Um, the church needs to have a very forward-leaning ministry to the Jewish people, and any church uh, in a community that has Jewish people ought to be engaged in reaching Jewish people, um, and and not think of it as uh, we, we love the Jews, therefore we don't want to offend them or anything. That, that's that's a mistake. Um, and I know I, I forget who the missionary was. Maybe Hudson Taylor had a friend who used to send him a, a check every year, um, but but the first, but he would have a little note. Oh, this guy was a Jewish doing a Jewish ministry and Hudson Taylor sent him a check and he would say to the Jew first and then this guy would send him a check and say and you know to the Gentiles to Greeks as well although he was in China but still um, <laughs> see that the principle was the key and I think uh, so they try I think so as much as you can apply the principle as possible um, but again there's places you're not gonna find Jewish people uh, I'll just put you on the spot is not to put you on the spot but because I've never really had a chance to talk to anybody about this I read their their work but I've not talked to either of them about it. Um, I'll just let you know this is the short an a short answer to the question mm -hmm. that fills it in and you and were that, you helped write a book on this. exactly where <laughs> right, I'm going so. um, we've uh, I edited a book with Mitch Glazer called to the Jew first that oh. actually is a look at that at this whole idea from a variety of angles so if you, you know, I, you know. It's an excellent book, I love it. I, <laughs> I should have said it first, but you know, okay. I highly commend I'll it. I'll go it's get it, it. I'll go first. get yeah. it. Yeah, so, so that, that actually walks through the text, discusses the passages and the principles that are involved, et cetera. So, um, so that, th there's no way in the space of an answer yeah. here we can, we can deal with that, but that, I would, I'd simply commend that book to yeah. your attention, for your attention. <laughs> Quickly, I, you know, the, the question about Islam, you've got, obviously Islam is a satanic uh, uh, counterfeit of, of the Bible and of Christianity, and even down to the idea of, of the 12th Imam or the Muft Moody, which are, you know. The, <laughs> Not Moody, that's a good Bible Moody. college. But, uh, <laughs> um, uh, Mahdi. Mahdi, okay. M-A-H-D-I, but anyway. <laughs> My friends up in Chicago, I just want to, you know, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Michael Redonlick and all. Yeah. Those guys. Yeah. Um, and, and the second coming of, of, of Jesus. Um, the fact, you know, 25 years ago, I, you know, there was no awareness of the Mahdi or the 12th Imam in, in a general way in the world. Here we, I mean, here we are now confronted by a, a, a very vastly growing awareness of Christ's second coming within the Christian community and then the, the, the Islamic counterfeit. My question is, um, how, how do you see that in a general end of times prophetic kind of mindset? Uh, the fact that we've got both of these now, the awareness is growing, and they're obviously diametrically opposed to each other. Well, I, I, well for me personally, I'm happy as a clam, and that's not even kosher. So, uh, <laughs> but we're under the New Testament anyway. So, uh, uh, hallelujah. Listen, I, just to be clear, you know, for the record, since we're on the record, you yeah. said, I, you know, 
I'm really happy about the New Testament and the, because of shellfish, but um, <laughs> it's not my main reason for loving the New the Covenant, but I, it's, it's on the list low, low, <laughs> pork as well. But anyway, that's just me. <laughs> Hashtag just saying. Now listen, um, my interest is, is, uh, is, is, I would say, almost primarily Bible prophecy. Obviously, I'm interested in geopolitics, but, but my novels uh, deal with geopolitical what-if scenarios. And some of them deal with the what-if, I marry a geopolitical scenario with, a, with taking a look at some of the Bible prophecies that will happen in the end times and thinking, I don't know when they'll happen and I don't know exactly how they will happen. But having studied them a lot, let's run a war game exercise. Let's write a novel or a series of novels that would examine how might we get from the geopolitical situation that we're currently in to that. Wouldn't that be interesting? It interests me and turns out it's interested a few others. Um, it, it, it allows me in a story to engage people's imagination uh, about topics they wouldn't otherwise have shown interest in. Uh, to me, that's Jesus teaching me, you know, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. His way with me is to have me fish by starting off a novel with an explosion, assassination, something horrific, and drawing you in on a geopolitical, spiritual, emotional journey where you're picking up information that you weren't necessarily thinking you wanted, but your adrenaline is pumping and it's now five or six o'clock in the morning and you're about to email me cursing me because you have to get up in an hour for work and you've been up all night reading. This is my main objective. <laughs> Sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation has worked in every, t uh, every type of terrorist uh, you know, uh, situation and we, we, that's, how we, that's how we deal with terrorism. Sleep deprivation. So that's my main objective. My so I'm trying to entertain. I'm trying to get your, I, you know, Howard Hendricks, we're in the Howard Hendricks Center. He used to say that, you know, you, you don't want your students to be saying, uh, when does this end? That you want them to say, how does this end? A story you ask, how does this story end? That's what keeps people moving. That's drama. You know, the student who's like, you know, is this on the test? And, you know, when does this class over? And you're thinking that now. I know. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm not sure even the answer. That's his department. Uh, but story allows me to pull people in and, and I can have Arab characters that are, that somebody might think, oh, that's, that's the bad guy, and it turns out not to be. He turns out to be a hero. Not because he's Arab or not because he's a Muslim, but because he's a human being who sees evil and decides I'm gonna take action. And that helps somebody differently than a nonfiction book or an op-ed, right? Uh, my current series, um, part of it is about uh, ISIS trying to launch a, ge uh, a, a genocidal attack with chemical weapons. And one of the countries they're trying to overthrow is Jordan. And I, the king of Jordan is an intriguing man to me. He's a descendant of the prophet Muhammad, the false prophet. Uh, you know, and, and uh, so I don't start with my books with Islam as a, a satanically driven you know, religion. I, you know, I, yes, of course, it was false prophecies and dreams and visions from the enemy. But I don't start that way. I start, you know, because I'm trying to draw people in. And when I was doing this series, the research, I thought, oh, maybe I, I've sat with two CIA directors to talk about these things and a former head of Mossad in Israel. Maybe I ought to go talk to a Sunni Muslim, maybe in Jordan, if I'm gonna write a novel about how these things might play out. And they let me come to sit with their prime minister, their foreign minister, their interior minister, the prince, as a Jew who believes in Jesus, who worked for Netanyahu. 
you know, I'm not exactly a poster child for the person they want to spend time with. <laughs> Especially when I told the ambassador in Washington, and, and the reason I, that what this book is about is the potential overthrow and assassination of your king and kingdom. Could, would you help me? <laughs> not to do that, but to run the war game. Let people see why is that bad? Not just for your country, but for ours and for the world. And what, what, but this allows me to go, and, and what's amazing on that trip was how many, sitting with the prime minister and he's saying, okay, yeah, I wanna talk about your topic, but um, how can we get more Christians to come to, uh, to Jordan? How come Israel's getting all the Christians? I said, well, have you been reaching out to Christians? Well, no, not exactly. Well, you know, let's start there. And uh, we ended up getting, I had a two and a half hour conversation with one of the, the highest ranking people in the country about Jesus. And he was making the case to me, you know, Jesus was probably baptized on the eastern side of Jordan <laughs> because, because the Gospel of John says that John the baptizer was in Bethany, right, on the other side of the Jordan. Well, other side from where? From the Israel side. And so he's, making, he's like, you know, Elijah, Elijah was on our side. That's where he was born. And then where did he go up to heaven? Our side. Okay, where did Elijah get the mantle? Our side. I mean, it was fascinating. I was like, I am in a meeting <laughs> with a descendant of Muhammad. This is a physical descendant. This was from the family. And we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the prophets. This is not a, you know, a photo op. We're having a conversation. Why? Because I came to write a book about the overthrow of his country. And this wasn't the king. I don't, 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 but, but I believe you can engage people with common threats, and respect, and a lot of prayer, and a desire to love people for the gospel. And I'll just, can I just give one other anecdote on this topic? Because, okay, so several years ago, a friend of mine who lives in Morocco uh, in business happened to give a copy of one of my novels to the director of Islamic Affairs. The guy is in charge of 33,000 mosques and was uh, you know one of the advisors to the king um, on Islamic affairs, also a family descendant from Muhammad. <laughs> and so this guy read one of my novels and he was coming to meet Condoleezza Rice, this is back in the Bush administration, in Washington and he said, hey, does your friend live in Washington, right? Yeah, yes, could I go have dinner with him? Uh, this is a fascinating novel, really. So my friend calls me and I said, who is this really? Come on, the guy wants to have, I said, we just had Passover here. You're saying that the head of Morocco's 33,000 mosques wants to come and have dinner with me? Okay, so fascinating. And we had a lovely dinner party for him. We invited some friends over. Then he invited me to Morocco. I said, okay, so we made the plan. I went over, he had a dinner party in his house. And after saying an Islamic blessing over the meal, which was an amazing meal, I might add, uh, lamb and the whole rice and the big piles of stuff, it was just amazing. So obviously I had too much, but uh, he says, he sits down and he's got the head of Homeland Security from Morocco and all these other, you know, you know, big weeks. It was, you know, 20 people in the room. And he says, okay, something's been bothering me. I said, okay. Your name is Rosenberg, right? <laughs> That's Jewish, isn't it? But when I was at your house, you, you, you describe yourself as an evangelical Christian, a follower of Jesus. I've been wondering about that. I don't understand how you can be Jewish and believe in Jesus. Would you share with me and, and my friends, how is that possible? 
I'm thinking to myself, Lord, you are kidding me. Are you, you know, if I was Elaine and Seinfeld, get out. Are you kidding me? You're gonna get, okay, let's, let's have that conversation. Now, th that's not a normal day in the life of everybody, but, but I believe this is the moment. And we've got to distinguish between people who are evil and people who are lost. And even the people who are evil are lost. And uh, sometimes we're gonna be Stephen and we're gonna preach the gospel right to the religious terrorist, Saul, and we're gonna die for it. And sometimes, you know, we're gonna be sharing the gospel with somebody and their eyes are gonna open and they're gonna come into the kingdom. And sometimes we're just planting seeds and we're not gonna see fruit right away. But this is the moment. This is what God is doing. Don't see the evil. And we have to understand the evil. It's evil. Jesus didn't say that these are not enemies, that they're misunderstood, you, you're not, you, know, you haven't studied them carefully. No, he says they're enemies. Fine, they're enemies. Do you love them? That's a big convicting question. Um, and I, might, I, I meet a lot of my readers who say, I didn't before I started reading your book and I'm still struggling now, but I'm sort of getting your point, one of my points. Okay, time for one last question. Sorry, that was an yeah. extended DVD yeah. answer, and I apologize. Um, we just kind of go back a little bit to this progression of career and uh, political, political, okay, sure. political consultant. Yes. And, uh, and then it, I guess I'm interested in a little bit about, okay, I want to write a book, and then the topic in question came up, or... I'm interested in being an advocate of Jesus Christ to the community of the Muslim world. Just kind of walk no, a little thought, bit. I never thought that. Walk a little Look, bit. I, I, okay, yeah, I will. Uh, I was despondent when I, you know, my, everybody lost and I couldn't. It's tough to lose. It is tough to lose. And, uh, you know, and then you think, well, who's going to? At some point, someone is going to look at the resume and go, why, why exactly am I hiring you? Like, there are other people, like winners, who, you know, who know how to do this. And I, was, I just thought, Lord, you've got to be kidding me. And then, and then I was you know, just doing some consulting, and I didn't have a client for a while. And then somebody wanted me to write a book about some provision in the Puerto Rican tax policy that you know, I was like, oh, I can't. I, you know, and this guy was offering me $40,000 to write this book about to get rid of this one provision. And I said, I said to my wife, I don't care if we go bankrupt, which we nearly were at that point. I said, I can't write a book that nobody cares for. I, I, my life is going nowhere. I could, 10 years of doing this, I could have gone to DTS several times. Um, <laughs> I could be a missionary. I could, you know, I could have gone to graduate school in some other way. Lord, you, you're killing me here. I mean, I, I, what is the point? It, I was very low, and I began to get the sense that, I should, that he wanted me to write a series of novels about Ezekiel 38 and 39. And I went, I don't think so, no. No, 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 no. You don't understand. What a, I know, that's just, you know, I'm sorry. That's, that's who I was. And I, I was like, Lord, anything but that. Not Puerto Rican tax policy, but pretty much anything I'll do, I'll do for you. I, you know, I'm narrowing a few categories I don't want to do for you, but I, just come on. My writing... You know, I'm writing books no one reads, I'm writing op-eds no one cares about, speeches no one listens to. So these are my loaves and fishes. You can take this, you can bless this, you can break this and, 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 and feed people with this. Please, 
but don't make me write about prophecy. I don't want to be one of those prophecy nuts. I don't want to look like I'm from Area 51. I'm trying to, I, 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 don't, I, I don't want to do that. And the Lord was not having any of that. And so I said, well, let, Tim LaHaye sold 65 million copies. You don't need another one. Uh, you know, and I don't even read novels and I don't even write, you know, I don't. So I, this, now, I admit, I admit, I guess now on the record, uh, had the Lord said, now let's just, would you just take a deep breath and have some decaf and, you know, just do what I say and, you know, maybe I'll put you in Morocco. Maybe you'll be sitting in Rabat sharing the gospel with a Muslim who oversees 33,000 mosques. I might have gone, oh, well, that'd be fun. Or, you know, maybe you'll get to sit with the, 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 the president of the Philippines and, you know, talk about Jesus. And, uh, oh, well, that'd be fun. And maybe the heads of the CIA. And I didn't see any of that. I just thought this was ridiculous. I don't want to be identified. So I came kicking and screaming into, you know, I am not a good strategist for myself. Uh, uh, political strategy was my career and communication strategy, and I think we've made it clear now that I don't know how to do it. And, 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 and this was the Lord's point, I, in part. One, to take me not to Dallas, which I love, but he wanted my political communications graduate school to be in very hard-edged international uh, and, and national politics, to hear how to make an argument to skeptics and to cynics, to teach Bible prophecy not to the choir in Dallas, but to people who think you're a lunatic and they're within the church, okay? Who don't want to deal with the 27% of scripture that's eschatology and yet have to, need to. So that's part of it. He wanted me to learn from Rush Limbaugh and Bibi Netanyahu and Steve Forbes and Bill Bennett and Jack Kemp how to make an argument and then sift it through biblically and say, okay, now take a little here and there, but now go here. That's part of it. But the other part was to write political thrillers, Tom Clancy-esque political thrillers, but I needed 10 years of geopolitical experience. I needed not primarily, in my case, I guess, from the Lord, the, the theological training in the ancient languages. What I needed was to know how to blow things up and make things exciting in, in, a, in a very realistic political thriller so that in when I fished, I would be drawing people in who, who wouldn't be thrown by that. Well, that's ridiculous, that would never happen because of the stories he wanted me to tell. He wanted me to be telling stories about prophecy, not how they would exactly happen or when, but to get people thinking, wow, these, I never even knew about these prophecies. How would, and the church is hardly teaching prophecy anymore, so, this is God's way for me, but I'm just saying I didn't want to do it. I thought it was ridiculous, and this is why God gets all the credit, and I get zero, because if it was up to me, you know, I um, wouldn't have done it. Hmm. And I'm just grateful that the Lord is merciful uh, to morons. You know, my, I'll, I'll close with this <laughs> truth sentence, actually. My wife literally, I mean, she has the spiritual gift of discernment. I have the gift of obliviousness. <laughs> and my whole life is trying to trust the Lord to override my inability to see the obvious. And as a Russian Jew, I'm a pessimist about everything. The glass is half full, there's a, of course, there's a hole in it, it'll all be gone by tomorrow, maybe by today. So I have to trust God that my pessimism about life helps me write worst case scenario thrillers. 
but it has to be balanced by the spirit and a wonderful Gentile spirit-filled wife who said, it's not all bad. Jesus is moving. He does love you and all of us. So let's just not get absorbed only in, in the bad. That's, that's my story, and unfortunately, I'm stuck with it now because that's what God is doing. And I'm great. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, all the parts about me that's so not pleasant, but I'm grateful that God is a great God. He's a prayer. I might have a, a, I'll close with this. I had an Indian pastor, literally from India, who discipled my wife and I in college. And, and, uh, and he was the on-site Hendrix. Hendrix was only an audio tape for me. Uh, but, uh, but this Dr. Koshi from India, he would say, Joel, lean, visa of a prayer, hearing and a prayer, answering God, a wonderworking God which I often needed English to English translation to understand what, what, what are you talking about, what? Joel and Lynn, we serve a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God, a wonder working God. And it's so true, it's so true. Let's thank Joel for... Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.